Welcome to episode 70 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. First thing we'll talk about is Derek Lewis getting the main event win over Alexi Olenek. I'll recap the rest of the UFC Vegas 6 card. Preview the upcoming pay-per-view that's coming this week, which is UFC 252, headlined by Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier, the trilogy fight between them. I'll recap Bellator's event, I believe it was Bellator 243, that just happened on Friday. Uh, we've got some other Bellator-related news with Corey Anderson being released from the UFC before his contract ran out and then heading over to Bellator. Yair Rodriguez is also, well, he's not out of the UFC, although there was a brief time where he was supposed to fight Zabit, refused to take the fight, and then was released. Uh, he got brought back, but the fight still hasn't happened, even though they tried to make it a lot, and they were trying to get this one for August 29th, I believe, and Zabit, or Yair is out of that one as well, so I'll talk about that. And then the last thing to get to will just be a, a handful of fight announcements, including a couple of title fights that were just announced over the course of the week. Uh, but back to the first topic, which is going to be Derek Lewis and his win over Alexi Olenek. This was a really odd fight in how it started and that I think most people who were looking at this matchup knew going in, as long as it stays within striking range, it massively favors Derek Lewis. When this fight goes to the ground, that should favor Alexi Olenek. And for whatever reason, Derek Lewis, uh, right off the start, decided to run after Olenek, threw a nice kick, and then chased him down into the fence, took him down surprisingly, uh, landed some nice shots where Olenek was turtled, but then Olenek went to half guard. And then from there, Lewis was seemed as though he was perfectly fine with staying on top of half guard. Figured that he's a, a big guy, he's tough to get off you. Um, a lot of sweeps are gonna be difficult uh, with Lewis on top, so he figured, okay, well, I'll just stay here, land some shots, and worst case scenario, you win the round. Best case scenario, you land some heavy shots that are able to lead to a finish. And ultimately, for him, that wasn't the case. Uh, landed some decent shots from half guard, but Olenek was able to come upon a single leg from half guard a couple different times, and every time he would come up on top, he would immediately immediately be able to pass into side control. It's not as, it looked as though Derek Lewis wasn't even trying to like control him in any kind of guard, uh, but he passed to side control. Go for that scarfold, um, sort of like a chest compression type of submission. Uh, you don't see it a ton in jiu-jitsu. It's more of like a catch wrestling move, although you, it has happened a few different times. I know Linux hit this in the UFC. I believe it was on Anthony Hamilton. Uh, there was a match between Josh Barnett and Dean Lister where Dean Lister hadn't been tapped out in years, and Barnett was able to get him with one of these. So it's a legit submission, uh, but ultimately he wasn't able to get the finish. The first time it looked as though that one wasn't super close because Lewis was on his side. The second one looked a lot closer, but both times Lewis was able to survive it and get through the round. What was interesting about this, though, is that at the end of the round, two of the judges gave the round to Lewis and one of the judges gave it to Olenek. And honestly... Before the post-fight interview, I had no idea how this would be scored because it's a really difficult one to score. So there's a couple different ways you can look at it. So you can, just from a striking standpoint, Lewis landed the more effective strikes, um, landed some good shots when Olenek was turtled. On top, had some decent ground and pounds, not as though he was ever close to getting a finish with his strikes, not as though he was ever close to getting a finish with a submission or anything like that. Uh, but for Olenek, Olenek got taken down, was taking those shots, did get on top a couple times, and when he got on top into side control... He went for a couple of submission attempts that didn't work. So if the submission attempts are close, you definitely want to give them a lot of credit because that means that you're close to finishing the fight. If the submission attempts are not close, uh, then that sort of limits the amount of credit you want to give. And the thing with this this scarful position that he was in is that it was sort of hard to tell how close that how close he actually was to getting a submission. And if you don't think he's close, then giving the round to Lewis makes sense. If you do think he's close, then Olenek should have won that round because even though he had top position for a while, he was effectively if the submission isn't in place right you're effectively just holding on to side control not advancing position so it's one of those things where you kind of have to get a read on how close was the submission the first one i don't think was that close the second one looked a lot closer i know lewis was having to um push away on olenek's face a lot and after the fight he admitted yeah that one was pretty tight and was getting pretty close 
so without having the knowledge of Derek Lewis saying, yeah, that, that second one was pretty tight, do you give the round to Lewis or Linux? That's that's sort of a tough one to judge. Um, with with the knowledge that we have now, though, and I, I think there were enough signs to kind of show that that second one was tight, you probably got to give the round to Alenik just because he was sort of close to getting a finish there. Uh, but that is a tough one to judge. I, either way, though, they go back, um, come out for the second round. Uh, Lewis goes for a jumping knee, and then after landing on the knee, throws a, a big right hand, drops Alenik. Uh, Alenik's hurt, tries to hang on to Lewis's leg, but Lewis is able to land some more shots on the ground, eventually gets the finish. Um, and from there, that's the end of the fight. So for Alexi Olenek, he's 43 years old, top 10 heavyweight. I'm sure he'll still be a top 10 heavyweight if you lose the number four guy. And you're number 10, you really shouldn't be going backwards. Um, for Derek Lewis, he's sort of in this odd spot right now where the heavyweight title is going to be figured out next week. Lewis has not fought Stipe. He did fight DC, but DC is retiring regardless. So if Stipe wins... You probably have to run it back with Francis. Uh, I, I think at this point, Francis has earned that title shot. If DC wins, then it becomes a little bit more questionable because at that point, does Stipe get an, an automatic title shot even though he loses? And then all of a sudden, there's a chance that Stipe loses to DC. And then within the next heavyweight title fight, Stipe wins the heavyweight title. And all of a sudden, you kind of have this weird spot where people feel like the baddest man on the planet is retired and not actually actively fighting. So it'd be interesting to see if the UFC would put Stipe back into a title fight right away. If they don't, and DC wins. Uh, Ngannou's got one of the spots. Who would then fight Ngannou? Do you give Curtis Blades to him, who's 0-2 against, 0 and 2 against him, but kind of has a decent shot or has a decent resume for a title fight at that point? Or do you give him Derek Lewis, who is on a three-fight win streak and has a win over Francis? Now, granted, that fight was terrible, but honestly, Derek Lewis probably makes a little bit more sense than Curtis Blades if you're matching someone up against Ngannou. And that's assuming that you're you're going to take Stipe Miocic out if Stipe loses to DC. So there actually is a chance that, depending on what happens on Saturday, that Derek Lewis might be in line for another title fight, uh, assuming that DC wins and assuming that the UFC doesn't want to put Stipe back in there right away uh, for another title fight right after. So that's going to be something to watch for Derek. If he doesn't get that, then the other fight that would make sense would be the one that he was calling for afterwards, which was with Curtis Blades. Um, Curtis would then be looking for someone to fight if you have... Um, Stipe versus Francis Ngannou, and then that fight would make sense, and then the winner should hopefully get a title fight. Now, granted, Curtis Blades versus Stipe is a, a new fight. That one, that one would be interesting. Curtis Blades against Ngannou. I mean, if he's beating everyone else at some point, you probably have to give him that, that third fight, even though he's been finishing both of the first two. Um, but either way, it's a good fight to keep both of them busy and to sort of work as a title eliminator. Uh, for Linux, I mean... He's never been a guy who I think too, too many people are like, oh, wow, this guy might be threatening for a title after losing this fight. Same position. He, he's still one of those guys who's going to be on the bottom half of the top 10, um, possibly in the 11 to 15 range of times, too. Uh, tough guy for a lot of guys to deal with, but more of like a, a main card filler than anything else. Next fight on the card in the coming event. This was just not a good fight for either of these guys. Uh, for Amari Akhmedov... For him to lose to Weidman the way that Weidman was looking, that's not a good look for Akhmedov, especially coming in as the number 11 guy in the division. Uh, for Chris Weidman, I mean, good for him. He's going to be in the rankings again. But a lot of the concerns that people had about Weidman were not were, were not taken away in this fight. Um, to his credit, he was a little bit more willing to strike in this fight than he has been in past fights. Granted, Akhmedov's not as dangerous a striker as a lot of the other opponents that Weidman has had. Uh, but even still, he, he was still really forcing his takedowns. And you kind of had a similar situation to what we've had in a lot of his past fights is that he puts so much energy into like forcing that takedown early that when he, whether he gets it or not, 
if he's not able to finish early, he's just used so much energy and just is so tense uh, that in the later rounds he just starts to run out of gas. I don't even think it's an issue where he's not training hard. I just think it's an issue of him just overexerting himself early on. Uh, so in this fight, uh, overexerted himself in the first round, uh, didn't have to win that round, but was ex was exhausted. Second round, uh, was having a lot of difficulty there. Uh, Akhmedov definitely won that round. Uh, Akhmedov was actually taking him down a couple times, and it's almost as though Wyman was like okay with it, just because he wanted Akhmedov to kind of come on top. I guess Wyman was just hoping that he could like get into a closed guard position, and stall, and catch his breath. Um, but it was not a good look for him, especially in a second round for a guy who used to fight five rounds all the time. Uh, and then third round, it looked like it was gonna be more of the same for Weidman. Weidman. To his credit, and this is something that, even as his striking is going to get a lot worse, or even as his striking has gotten worse over time, and even as his chin's gotten worse over time, the wrestling doesn't tend to get a whole lot worse. Um, the jiu-jitsu is not going to tend to get a whole lot worse. Sometimes it can get even a little bit better over time. But he's always had really good wrestling, and he's always had fantastic top control um, and, and really a good top game um, in his jiu-jitsu, especially once he's able to get to a position like mount. He's got a very heavy mount, very difficult to get off of you. And so for him, he was able to take Akhmedov down, uh, threatened the back to where Akhmedov had to turn back into him. And then from there, Weidman was able to get on top of Mount. And then from there, now Weidman's in a position where he wants to kill the clock anyway. He's he's just gen generally very good at holding Mount to begin with. And so from there, he was just kind of hanging on a Mount, was doing enough to stay active there, was was going for some arm triangles that weren't very slickly set up, but it's not as though that was the intention there. If he could finish with it, he'd, he'd be happy to. But for him, it kind of seemed as though the plan for Chris Weidman there was to do enough on top to allow the ref, or have the ref allow you to keep keep attacking, and it ended up working out. He was able to kill much of the round from top, uh, and ends up winning that round. So wins the first round, wins the third round, and so wins two rounds to one. Uh, it's in, it looks like a couple of judges gave him a 10-8 round just because he was in mount for pretty much the entire round. Uh, so you have the duration of the three Ds, um, I think dominance, damage, and duration of the others. Uh, so I guess you'd call that dominance too. So it'd be dominance and duration. It really wasn't a ton of damage from there, but that was enough for him to get the win. So for Akhmedov, um, it, his wrestling just wasn't able to keep up with Chris Weidman over the course of the entire fight, even though he did have some good moments in the second round. Um, on the ground, when he did have Weidman down, wasn't able to really take advantage of those situations, even when Weidman would expose his back to get back up. Uh, on the feet, just sort of like throwing wild bombs at times wasn't really uh, all that technical. Weidman was keeping his left hand down the entire fight, uh, leaving a big opening for Akhmedov's right hand, which was the power punch that looked like he wanted to land but even still he wasn't able to land it hard enough to to really alter that fight so for um, Omari um, he, he's still going to be a tough guy at middleweight he's still going to give a lot of guys problems he's fought some pretty tough guys up until this point including Marvin Vittori and had good results so it's not as though he can't still be a tough guy in the bottom half of the, or on the bottom half of the rankings but seeing him as a guy who could potentially work his way up the rankings and start fighting some of the top 10 guys and be a few fights away from a title shot I, I think at this point it looks like he's got a lot of work to do until he gets back to that point again. Uh, for Chris Weidman, now would be a, arguably now would be a good time to retire. He's coming. He's now has a win that he's coming off of. Uh, he's going to have a number next to his name in a couple days. I I just I I don't want to see him get into positions where he's having to fight some of the top guys in the world again, and especially the better strikers. He he's just going to be in a really tough spot. He he has a great grappling game. Uh, he's a better wrestler than most in the division. Uh, his top game is better than most in the division, so he, he does have that, and he's going to have that for pretty much ever, but if you're not willing to strike, if you're not willing to set up those takedowns, it's going to make things a whole lot difficult for you, and if you don't have the gas tank to wrestle hard for more than like five or six minutes before you start like having your hands low and getting to the point where you're willing to let people take you down so you can just kind of hang on to them and 
kill the clock and catch your breath again. It it just doesn't show it doesn't show a lot of positive things for your future and towards the top of the division. So for him, I I don't know what his plan would be once he's done with MMA. I think that's always a problem for a lot of these guys. I'm sure Chris Weidman makes a good amount of money in the UFC, and from a money standpoint, it's worth sticking around. When you beat a, a guy like Akhmadov, who was number 11 in the division, it tells you that you can still compete with a lot of the top guys. So I, I don't get the feeling that he's actually going to retire, but to a degree, I kind of would like to see it right now. But depending on who's next for him, uh, you'd hope that he has some more matchups where he's not going to get completely battered, but if you're going to be in the top 15, you're going to be fighting tough guys, and you, you kind of have to worry for him. Uh, fight before that was Darren Stewart versus Maki Patolo. Uh, this was sort of an odd fight in that I, I thought Stewart would have a much easier time on Patolo than he did. Um, Patolo constantly circled to Stewart's left side, and Stewart really was not doing a very good job of corralling him at all, and as a result, Patolo was starting to have some success because Stewart was very comfortable throwing his right hand, but with his left hand, he wasn't as comfortable. Uh, wasn't doing a very good job of cutting off Patolo as Patolo would circle to the right. Uh, and then whenever he'd throw the left hook, it would sort of leave an opening for Patolo to counter with his own right hand. It was getting Stewart a little bit concerned. Um, however, Patolo goes in for a takedown uh, up against the fence. Stewart initially defends, um, trying to lift up with a couple underhooks, then switches over to a guillotine. Uh, had a really nice tight grip, made a quick little adjustment on it, and had it tight enough where Patolo was forced to tap up against the fence. So big win for Darren Stewart. Uh, fight before that was just one of the worst fights I've seen in a while uh, between Yana Kuniskaya and Julia Stolyarenko. I have no idea what Kuniskaya was planning on doing in this fight. I don't know what her strategy was. Uh, obviously, she did win. She looked like the much bigger girl uh, versus Stolyarenko, but it seems as though her game plan was just to hold Stolyarenko up against the fence, but not like create enough space where she could land like some heavy shots against the fence and potentially knock Stolyarenko out. But at the same token, even when Stolyarenko would try to pull guard and like allow uh, Kuniskaya to have a takedown or allow Kuniskaya to end up on top. Kuniskaya just didn't want it. So it's like her strategy was not to really get to the ground if she didn't have to. Uh, stall if she did get to the ground. Um, but then also not really strike too much either. It was just like this really boring style that you would have liked to have seen the ref uh, force some more stand-ups on. But either way, she was able to force Stolyarenko up against the fence multiple times. Stolyarenko didn't do much to keep her back off the fence. Uh, and then once she was on the ground, really wasn't all that effective in creating spaces. Kuniskaya was just trying to stall, so just not a very exciting fight, uh, but Kuniskaya did get the win there. And then we have Benil Dariush versus Scott Holtzman. Uh, Holtzman had a hell of a chin. Uh, Dariush was landing a, a ton of really hard left hands on Holtzman's chin. Uh, you could tell that he was hurt, but he was never really like super wobbled and never really going down, and then ultimately it, it took a spinning back fist to, to finally do it, but Dariush was able to knock Holtzman out with a spinning back fist. Um, I'm kind of curious to know how Dariush's... Um, elbows doing after that because when you watch the replay on it in slow-mo it looks like there was a lot of uh, a lot of tension on his forearm there uh you, you kind of wonder if he got hurt a little bit because it didn't look like it it obviously landed hard to get the knockout but it also was one of those ones where sometimes spinning back pistol jack up your forearm depending on where they land and that was one where it looked like it could have potentially hurt Darius. he didn't make any comments about it afterwards so maybe he is okay but it did look a little a little painful uh, but either way really big win for him unfortunately he was a couple pounds over so he did not get a fifty thousand dollar bonus um, but he's still ranked in the top 15 at lightweight, and it's not as though he's going to drop in the rankings after this. Uh, so we'll see what the UFC wants to do with him moving forward. Um, for last fight on the prelims, or the main event of the prelims, was Tim Means versus Loreno Staropoli. Uh, really fun fight. Um, both these guys were really going after each other. Means was landing the better shots, uh, was going for some takedowns late in rounds as well to, to steal some rounds, and ultimately he wins the unanimous decision. Uh, two of the judges gave him two rounds to one. One of them gave him all three rounds. Uh, Kevin Holland versus Joaquin Buckley. 
this was a really fun fight, especially in the apex where they, there weren't any fans because you could actually hear a lot of what Kevin Holland was saying. It's kind of a shame that Buckley didn't want to talk shit back to him, but that, that's perfectly fine. That's up to Buckley. Um, but for the most part, this fight was handled on the feet. Uh, Buckley was just swinging in wild with heavy shots, occasionally would land. Um, but a lot of times Holland would get out of the way. Holland was a little bit crispier, a little bit crisper with the straight shots. Uh, every time I would get within tight, uh, get in tight, Holland was doing a good job of landing elbows and knees. Um, but eventually in the third round, Holland's able to land a, a huge um, straight right hand that just blasted the mouthpiece out of Buckley's mouth. Uh, Buckley was on the ground, sort of looked a little bit confused. Um, ref initially was going to allow Holland to come in and get the finish, or come in and finish on the ground, but then uh, made the decision just as Holland was coming in that the fight should be stopped at that point, so that was the end of it. Uh, fight before that was Nazarat Hakparas versus Alex Munoz. Uh, Munoz initially was somewhat successful in getting the fight to the ground. Um, it was pretty obvious that this was going to be a striker versus wrestler type of matchup. Um, but after Hakparas was able to get back up, was doing a much better job of keeping Munoz off of him. Um, did a really good job landing uppercuts every time that Munoz tried to shoot in. And so it forced Munoz to try to strike with Hakparas, and that wasn't working all that well for him. Uh, so Nazarat was able to outstrike him and win this fight 30 27 on all three judges' scorecards. Before that, we had Andrew Sanchez versus Wellington Terman. Sanchez, I, I mean, he was definitely a lot more willing to strike in this fight. I don't know. They, they were saying Terman was a jiu-jitsu fighter. I, I don't know what exactly his background is in jiu-jitsu, if he's like a black belt or if he has like any um, like big championships to his name. But either way, Sanchez, um, who's always been known as like this uh, NAIA uh, two-time national wrestling champion, uh, who's had a lot of success in jiu-jitsu as well. I believe he was like a purple belt world champion at one point. Um, He's been known for his grappling, though, so it was interesting to see him not really choose to grapple early in this fight. Uh, was having a lot of success with the hands, and ultimately that right hand was finding a tone multiple times uh, before he finally was able to knock Terman out in the end of the first round. Uh, fight before that, we had Justin James versus Gavin Tucker. Uh, sort of a funny fight uh, in that there was a moment when James was going for a guillotine on Tucker. Tucker uh, was, like, squirming his way out because he was mounted, um, and his, his shorts got pulled off as he was doing that. Uh, but ultimately was able to get on top, and then finally in the third round was able to catch a Renegade choke on Janes for the win. Uh, really fun fight between Yusuf Zalal and Peter Barrett. Started off awesome with a spinning back, or like a, not even just like a regular spinning back kick, but it's sort of like, it, it's hard to describe, but there's like this this backward spinning kick from Zalal where it's kind of like similar to like a sweet chin, it was like a, sp swing, a spinning sweet chin music almost uh, in a way to, to make a call back to Shawn Michaels, but... Knocked Barrett down. Barrett was able to survive, but Zola was um, just given a problems for much of this fight. Was able to win a, a unanimous decision. And then the first fight on the card uh, ended up going to a split decision between Erwin Rivera and Ali Alkasi or Alkaisi, and Rivera got the win there. Um, so that covers it for UFC Vegas six. Uh, the next card to preview is going to be next week's card, which is headlined by Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic. Uh, this is going to be the third fight between the two of them. Uh, Cormier won the first one by knockout. Miocic won the second one by knockout. And so now they have the third fight coming up, and it's going to be interesting to see how this one goes. It is interesting that this fight's going to be happening in the small cage. It'll be in the 20 foot, 25 foot cage, not the 35 foot cage. Uh, so in tighter confines, that arguably should help out Daniel Cormier because Cormier is going to be the one trying to wrestle here. As far as how this fight's going to go, it, it's really difficult because I've I've rewatched the fights. I've Watch some breakdowns on it too. Uh, it feels like it's been forever since BJJ Scouts put out a MMA breakdown. Uh, he just put a, put out a breakdown on this particular fight, so I would definitely encourage you guys to watch that one. It's about 11 minutes long, but it's pretty helpful. And it's tough to me because a lot of people, a lot of one of the things a lot of people talk about is that Daniel Cormier should have wrestled more in the second fight. 
and that's not really an argument I agree with too much because it's not as though Cormier wasn't trying to wrestle in rounds two through four. It's just that he wasn't finding openings to, to shoot in and really force a takedown. It's not as though Miocic is a guy who the second you get your hands on him, you're going to take him down. He's a very good wrestler himself. He's a former D1 wrestler at Cleveland State. So it, it it's not as though every time Cormier gets his hands on Stipe, he's going to be able to take him down. And for that... In the later round, Stipe was doing a much better job of controlling the distance from keeping Cormier off of his legs, and as a result, Cormier wasn't really able to get any takedown attempts off of on him. Uh, I, I think Stipe can do a lot of the same and, and make it difficult for Cormier to find the openings for takedowns in this fight as well. Uh, but with that being said, with the tighter cage, it also is going to make it tougher for him to stay off the fence and keep from getting held up against the fence and have Cormier attempt to take down from there. And Cormier is very good up against the fence, especially going to his high crotch and getting a finish from there. So... That's going to be something worth worth watching. Another thing is the eye pokes. Um, depending on who you listen to, some people say it's not an issue. Some people say it's a huge issue. I, I think it's definitely a big issue, especially with the damage that happened to Stipe Miocic's eyes uh, in, in the second fight. He can Stipe can be as tough as he wants about this, and just any time that Cormier is reaching his hands out, just kind of pretend that they aren't there or just not make a big deal out of it. But ultimately, to go through all he went through after the last fight, I get the feeling that Stipe is going to be a little bit nervous every time that DC reaches out his hands and has his fingers fingers open, and that could potentially cause some issues. If he actually does land some eye pokes, which seems like it's something that happens often with Daniel Cormier, that can be an issue as well. So I think that's going to be something to watch for. I don't know how the refs are going to handle this. Uh, the the proper way is beforehand the refs going to have to go to DC and be like, look, first eye poke, we're taking a point away. Like we can't we can't allow this to happen. Now at the same point, even though DC deserves to have a point taken away in the, off of the first eye poke, you really can't go to one competitor and say, hey, your first eye poke, we're taking a point away, no questions asked, and then not go to the other competitor and say the exact same thing. Uh, not that I think that Stipe is going to accidentally eye poke Daniel Cormier, and that's going to have like a fight-altering effect on the fight, but it potentially could, and it's definitely going to be something to watch for. Uh, part of the reason why DC has been eye poking as much as he does is because oftentimes he likes to reach his arms straight out, sort of like a zombie in a way. Um, and it, it sort of forces you in a position where if you try to like punch to the head, he, he's got frames up to block them. Um, and if you try to hand fight, then usually he, he'll be better at hand fighting than you. He'll be able to like knock a hand down and throw a punch over the top. Uh, so it's a little style that works effective for him, but he keeps his fingers out when he does that. So if you try to move in as his fingers are out, you can sometimes move your head into them. Uh, sometimes if you, you make a quick movement, he might just try to like punch at you, but his hands are already open. So fingers are going to be open. They'll poke right into your eye. Uh, so it's a stylistic thing for Daniel Cormier that sort of leads to that. Now, what's interesting about that specific that, that specific issue is that that style of Daniel Cormier, where he, he reaches his arms out sort of zombie-like uh, to create frames against taller fighters, that the, the, the big counter to that and the big opening that that leads is, is shots to the body. Um, Anderson Silva was effective in landing kicks to the body before he eventually was taken down against that style. Um, but Stipe, in the fourth round, made a big adjustment to that, and as DC's arms are up and as he's able to frame away to, to protect his head, he's not necessarily... Uh, protecting his body quite as well and that's where Stipe was able to find a lot of openings to land to the body and as a result rather than keeping those frames out DC started to bring his elbow in to pr- try to protect his body then at that point Stipe was able to land some left hooks to the head uh, and eventually was able to knock Cormier down uh, landing to the head after Cormier had withdrawn his arms because he had taken so many body shots so if Cormier or if uh, Stipe is effective at landing to the body especially early on in this fight that can keep Cormier from kind of doing that arms reach out zombie type of thing that he does that led to a lot of eye pokes. Uh, so that might help solve the problem for him. Now, with that being said, 
once Stipe made that adjustment, he was able to get the finish off of that adjustment, so we never really get to, got to see Cormier's adjustment to that adjustment. Cormier can also fight where he, he's just in a more of a traditional stance where he isn't reaching his arms out and still be effective from there. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see once this fight starts how Cormier looks to approach it. Does he just automatically go out there and just try to treat it like a normal uh, striking match where he's not, re leading, or not reaching his arms out um, in the same way that he had in the past fight? And in doing so, he's less likely to eye poke, but at the same point, he's not leaving the opening for Stipe to just constantly land on his body. Um, does he mix it up a little bit too? Because one of the things is that when Stipe throws that left to the left hook to the body, it's not as though he keeps his other keeps his right hand uh, up by his head. Th there definitely is an opening to counter Stipe. It's just one of those things where you know a big left hook's coming to your body and you want to counter with the right hand. Um, if you do attempt to counter with the right hand, you're, you're going to take the shot to the body pretty much no matter what. It's going to be a question of whether or not you're going to be accurate with your counter. Uh, so is DC going to be willing to take a couple of those left hooks to the body early just so he can try to counter over the top of the right hand? Uh, that'll be worth watching because there, there is an opening for it. Um, but either way, what's exciting about this fight is that there's there's just a lot of different ways for both of these guys to win. Uh, DC's going to benefit from this being in tighter confines. Um, it, it should make it easier for him to be able to get Stipe up against the fence, and that position should benefit DC. Granted, it'll be tiring, and, and Stipe's not going to go down easy, and Stipe will work his way back up when he does go down. Um, but you'd figure, just generally speaking, that position is going to be better for DC. Uh, in the striking, DC was outlanding Stipe in most rounds up until uh, Stipe was able to take over in round four. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if part of that was because of the... Um, uh, it feels weird saying zombie over and over, but because of like that sort of like zombie stance uh, where he has both arms reached out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if, if DC continues to do that and if Stipe immediately goes back to the body again, uh, or if DC changes it up and if going back to more of a traditional stance leads to Stipe starting to find more success than DC. Uh, but either way, this is going to be a really fun fight to watch. It'll be really interesting to see right away um, how both of these guys approach it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how DC tries to adjust to Stipe Miocic finding the hole uh, or finding the opening uh, landing to the body. So a lot to watch for here. It's going to be a fun fight and it, it, really be, it will really be interesting to see who wins it and where the division goes from there. As far as a lot of the, these go conversations that people are having where it's like, well, if DC wins, then he's the heavyweight goat, or if Stipe wins, he's the heavyweight goat. I, I, I just... These conversations are kind of annoying just because how people define it is always weird. Like, every time you're talking about, like, who's the greatest heavyweight of all time, there's a couple different ways you can look at it. There's the way of, like, who had the best career on paper, and then there's also the way of, like, on any given night, uh, give me one fighter um, who would win, or who would be the best on that given night, uh, each fighter at their best, and that's a separate conversation. Uh, for Stipe Miocic, I think, from a resume standpoint, he's going to be pretty well off, especially if he wins this fight, in terms of having, like, that greatest of all time thing. Now, with that being said, do I think that Stipe Miocic is the best heavyweight to have ever fought? Uh, that that'd be, that'd mean that I'm saying that Stipe on his best night would beat Kane on his best night. Um, he'd beat Verdum. Well, I guess he'd beat a pretty good Verdum uh, when he won the title. Uh, but he'd beat that guy on his best night. Um, he could beat DC on his best night. Like... That, that's sort of a different conversation so to me it's it's sort of a weird conversation worth having because you really have to define what you're talking about beforehand whether you're talking about just the resume uh or whether you're talking about how good the actual fighter was that's one of the things that i heard a lot with Dem demetrius johnson that used to annoy me a lot too is that whenever people were talking about his greatness like yeah well look at who he fought and it's one of those things where it's like that's not necessarily like arguing that he's not great like if michael jordan only played in ymcas he would still be michael jordan he'd still be like as good as he is like it's not as though you become, it's not as though you become a better player just because the the people you play or the people you go against are better, necessarily. 
Um, but as far as like arguing greatness, like having beaten better guys, definitely, it definitely proves and solidifies how good you are. So, I, I, I guess I'll leave the conversation at that. Um, if you guys want to get into debates like that, or if you have takes on it, definitely leave those in the comment, and I'm, I'll, I'll be sure to respond. But to me, it's just one of those conversations where it's like, a, without having it well defined at the beginning, it's sort of hard to hard to have a fair argument. Um, what appears to be the Conan event, at least according to ESPN, is Sean O'Malley versus Marlon Vera. Uh, this is going to be a pretty interesting fight. Um, pretty interesting style matchup in that Vera is a guy who doesn't necessarily specialize in one area. He's pretty good all around. Um, I guess his wrestling would probably be the weakest area, but it's not as like he's a bad wrestler. Um, but pretty good kickboxer. Um, pretty solid on the ground as well. I believe he's a brown belt um, under 10th planet. Uh, going against Sean O'Malley, who is very quick reactions. Um, very hard-hitting striker, very accurate striker. Um, as far as his grappling goes, it seems as though he's a pretty strong purple belt. So it'll be interesting to see where this fight goes. I wouldn't imagine that's going to take place on the ground. I think for the most part it'll be on the feet. And the types of guys who are going to give O'Malley the most trouble on the feet are going to be guys who move their feet a lot, who aren't static targets, and also people who can probably mix in takedown attempts at least enough to, to keep O'Malley guessing. I don't really see Vera mixing in too many takedown attempts to keep him guessing. It's not as though Vera is like, the most active in terms of his footwork either so it seems like he's the type of guy who O'Malley is going to be able to find a hole on eventually now with that being said uh, Vera is very dangerous himself and he's also good at finding openings um, but it seems to me like this is a matchup that is a little bit better designed for Sean O'Malley than it is for Marlon Vera so I would expect O'Malley to probably get the win here uh, on the next part of the card it's going to be a pretty good heavyweight fight between Jerzino Rosenstrike and Junior Dos Santos um, Dos Santos Hmm. This is a tough one to break down just because Dos Santos is one of those guys where over time he's been less willing to throw combinations than he had early in his career. It's not as though his striking's gotten to the point where he's like at Chris Weidman's level where he just doesn't want to strike with people. or It's like a, a Rashad Evans type of thing where it's like one punch at a time and then you have to like pull your hand back to your face and keep a high guard so you don't get hit because you're so worried about it. Um, it does seem like in recent fights Dos Santos has opened up a little bit more than he had uh, in the fights prior. But with that being said, Rosenstrike's going to be a really dangerous guy for him. Um, and it's going to give him a lot of problems if he does land on him. Person Strike doesn't seem as though he's super concerned about um, taking too many shots, but with that being said, he just had a really bad knockout loss to Francis Ngannou, uh, so you have to wonder how he's going to come back after that. Uh, he does have a pretty long kickboxing career, but this is his first MMA loss, so it'll be interesting to see how he returns. Um, prior to that Ngannou loss, I think Rosenstrike would probably have to be a heavy favorite here. Uh, after the Ngannou loss, we don't know exactly what we're going to get out of him, uh, how, willing he's going to be ex how willing he is going to be to exchange, um, but you would think that from a skill set standpoint, and then you'd figure that his chin would still be better than JDS, that with his fight mostly being on the feet, it's probably going to favor Rosentroik. Now, with that being said, uh, JDS is a black belt. He has decent enough wrestling where he can take fights down. Uh, we saw him do that to tie to Ivasa. If that's the approach he wants to take here against Rosenstreich, and he's able to successfully close the distance, um, th there's a good chance that this could be a, a dominant fight for Junior Dos Santos where he just makes it a grappling match. So that's always going to be something to think about as well. Uh, so for that reason, I really wouldn't bet on it just because I don't know what to expect out of Rosenstrike and I don't know what Dos Santos is planning to do. Uh, but if Dos Santos does want to make this a grappling match and he's actually willing to throw a couple punches to set up his takedowns, um, this could be a pretty dominant fight for him. A uh, fight before that is going to be a fun one between John Dotson and Marab Deviashvili. Uh, really be, it'll be an interesting matchup for Marab in that Dotson's really quick uh, and difficult to get your hands on and difficult to get a hold of and difficult to keep a hold of if you actually are able to do that. Uh, so for Marab, that's primarily how he wants his fights. He's able to take guys down and I, I guess for better or for worse with him, he has a lot of mat a lot of fights where he'll have like 
eight, nine, ten plus takedowns over the course of the fight, which in theory isn't ideal if you're fighting in three rounds. I mean, if you're a completely dominant wrestler and you don't get a finish, that means you should probably you should only get three takedowns. You get one at the start of the first round, and they're down the whole time. One at the start of the second round, they're down the whole time. Uh, one at the start of the third, and they're down the whole time. So to his credit, he's able to get guys back down after they get back up. Um, but it also means that guys are getting back up on him. And if Dotson's one of those guys who's tough to track down, uh, tough to keep a hold of, if he's able to get back up multiple times, that could be a problem for Marab. And you would figure on the feet, Dotson should have the advantage. So this should be a pretty fun fight um, and a pretty interesting style matchup between the two of them. And then we finally have that rematch between Magomed Ankalaev and Ian Kutalaba. First fight, Ankalaev was looking pretty strong at, strong at the start. Uh, Kutalaba pretended to be hurt, although he did take a decent shot. Um, and the ref fell forward and ultimately stepped in to stop the fight while Kutalaba was fine. So they'll have a rematch. Uh, but based off of that first fight, it looks like Ankalaev is definitely the more technical striker. Uh, isn't afraid to mix it up with Kutalaba, so I'd imagine he's probably going to be able to win this fight as well. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Kutalaba tries to play possum again or not, but I think Ankalaev should have the win either way. Uh, on the prelims, we have Jim Miller returning. Um, he'll be fighting Vince Pichel. Uh, Ashley Yoda versus Liviana Souza. Herbert Burns versus Daniel Pineda. And Felice Herrig, it feels like it's been forever since she's fought, uh, but she'll be fighting Wiener, or Verna Jandaroba. Uh, we've also got TJ Brown versus Danny Chavez and Chris Dawkins versus Parker Porter. Uh, so next thing to talk about will be Bellator 243, just recapping a handful of fights from there. Um, on the on the prelims, there were a few interesting fights. Uh, the prelim main event was between Adam Borch and Mike Hamill. A really close fight, uh, but Borch was able to eke out a split decision here. Uh, Hamill was trying to wrestle for the most part, uh, had some success, but Borch was able to do enough to keep the fight on the feet and land enough shots when it was on the feet to, to win this fight. AJ Agazarn versus Chris Lencioni was just a bizarre fight, and just as a whole, AJ Agazarn just kind of like a bizarre fighter to watch. In that, it's like one of those things where it's like when you watch him, like, God, this guy sucks, but he also doesn't suck. Like, it's really weird. Like, his wrestling oftentimes is really ineffective. Um, He'll like sort of like give up on it at weird times. Uh, sometimes he's willing to end up on his back. Sometimes he's not. Um, there are times on the ground where he looks like he has no idea what he's doing. Other times where it's like, oh yeah, that's right. This guy is an ADCC silver medalist and a guy who has won some black belt world titles um, in Nogi. And it's just like it's bizarre. Like like I mentioned in the past, like if you want to have a jujitsu guy successfully transition MMA like a very important thing for them is that they're able to get the fight to the ground uh, consistently. And once they get to the ground, that they're constantly moving forward, that they're constantly improving position. Uh, you're, you're not really getting consistent takedowns out of AJ Agus arm. You're definitely not getting consistent, uh, constant forward movement on him. Uh, even in this fight, as bad as he looked, there was that moment in the first round where he had Chris Lencioni's back. And it's like, oh my goodness, is he actually going to like finish him, um, finish Lencioni and, and, and beat this guy? Because Lencioni overall is a better MMA fighter than AJ Agus arm is. Uh, but Agus arm lost the position. Lencioni ended up on top. Uh, which was sort of odd, um, given that it was in the first round. You, di- you didn't figure that Lencioni should, been able, should have been able to reverse that position, but he did. Um, but then from there, it was just more of the bizarre same out of Aga's arm, and Lencioni eventually gets the win, and then Aga's arm acts like a weird little brat at the end of it. But just a weird fight, but good one for Chris Lencioni. Um, good little name for him to get a win over him, good for him to get some attention. Uh, he's one of those guys where you would hear Chael Sonnen talk about him a, a lot on his podcast as him being a, a good up-and-comer. Uh, Bellator finally signed him. Had a couple opportunities, won some fights, lost some fights. Um, but here he had an opportunity against a, a pretty big name in AJ Agus arm and, and got a win and had some fun at the end too, where he was able to talk some shit to him after he got the win too. And then the fight before that was Valerie, Valerie Lareda versus Tara Graf. Um, just not the most technical fight at all. Uh, Lareda was backing up a lot. I wasn't having a ton of success with her kicks, so kind of slow with her punches, but 
Graf wasn't necessarily looking that great with her punches either. Uh, but late in the second round, Loretta was able to land a really big right hand that knocked uh, Graf down, landed a few more shots in the ground, and then had just this really bizarre... Um, at, at first, she was screaming at Graf, which I guess she was mad at what Graf had said before the fight, and then she's like realized that she wasn't supposed to be mad, and that she instead was supposed to like do some kind of like sexy salsa dance and twerk. So she started doing that too. Uh, but either way, uh, I, I guess good win for her. Moves her to three and zero. But with that being said, um, she, she just kind of is what she is. The Bellator brings these types of girls in a lot, where they they have like these really good looking girls who aren't necessarily the best fighters, uh, but they they sort of feed them to cans, try to build a bit of a name after a name around them and see how long they can last uh for Loretta, I, I guess as long as they can keep feeding her cans uh she'll be able to keep moving along and keep um keep winning but her game has a lot of room for improvement and even where she's supposed to be a specialist on the feet um just really isn't that great of a striker so it'll be interesting to see what they want to do with her from here if Paige Van Zandt does end up going to Bellator and she ends up in a fight with Loretta, which would be a pretty decent main event um if you're just trying to get a lot of eyeballs uh, I, I probably have to like take all the money that I have and put it on Paige Van Zandt. But with that being said, still a big win for Loretta. Um, I'm sure she feels good about it. it. Sounds like she got into like a car accident before the fight happened too. I was thinking about pulling out. So for her to be able to get through that and still come out and get the win, uh, that's something she can be happy about. As for the main card, uh, first fight on the card was Miles Jury versus Georgie Garkanyan. Jury won a split decision. Uh, Saba Hamasi won a unanimous decision over unanimous decision over Curtis Millinder. A uh, bit of a surprise upset in the co-main event with Timothy Johnson getting a TKO over Matt Mitrione. And then in the main event, Michael Chandler just dominated Benson Henderson, was able to knock him out in the first round. And as I had mentioned on last week's podcast, it sounds as though he is now looking to move on from Bellator and potentially go to the UFC. If he does sign with the UFC, it'll be interesting to see who he gets. It, it's a bit of a, an unfortunate situation in that, that Michael Chandler versus Khabib Nurmagomedov match is one that I really wanted to see. And it doesn't sound like the timing's going to work out on that. Um, I, I guess the only way we're really going to get that fight is if Khabib loses to someone else, uh, at which point it's not going to be as interesting. I think, as I mentioned before, there's there's two types of matchups that people really want to see with Khabib. They want to see him fight against the guy who Khabib can't take down, or they want to see him fight against the guy who's going to try to take down Khabib and play Khabib's game against him. I don't know that is going to try to play Khabib's game against him, but he can definitely be one of those guys who's going to be difficult to take down and is going to have heavy punches on the feet. But with that being said, I guess we have Justin Gaethje, who's probably a more technical striker than, than Michael Chandler is, um, who's going to fill that role. Now, Chandler is, was a better wrestler than Justin Gaethje was, but still, uh, that's the fight we're getting. Uh, so if he doesn't get Khabib, um, then for him, it'd be interesting to see him fight a lot of other guys. I guess Dustin Poirier would be a fun one. Uh, it'd be fun to see him fight against Justin Gaethje eventually, if that's a fight that gets made. I don't know what will be next for Gaethje. It depends on if he beats Khabib or not. Uh, you, you could potentially give him Tony Ferguson. Charles Oliveira is another fun name that's thrown out there as well. Uh, but a lot of opportunities for him if he gets um, or if he does sign with the UFC. So next topic to talk about is also going to be Bellator-related. So Corey Anderson was a guy who was hanging around the top five and potentially could have earned a title shot um, leading into his fight against Jan Blachowicz. Ends up getting knocked out in that fight, and as a result sort of gets pushed back down to the rankings. Apparently afterwards he... Uh, made a request to the UFC for them to release him. I don't think Dana White really was too happy with him in the first place. He just wasn't the most exciting fighter. Uh, didn't do a very good job of selling himself outside of the octagon and did one of those things that you never really want to see a fighter do is when they start talking about how soon they're planning on retiring because if you're a promotion, if you're, if you're the UFC, or even if you're Bellator for that matter, uh, it's tough to put a lot of money behind a guy to try to build him up and make a star out of him if he's not going to be around for more than a couple of years. So you had Corey Anderson talking about retirement. You had him talking... Or he had him not talking to promote most of his fights, and it was just one of those things where, 
it was like he's not the most exciting guy when he's in there. Um, doesn't bring a lot of excitement around him when he's outside the cage. Uh, so I don't think the UFC is super sad to see him go, and that's part of the reason why while he was still on contract, they let him go. And Bellator did scoop him up. I don't know from a payment standpoint if he's making more at Bellator than he was with the UFC, if he took a pay cut just to get out of the UFC, uh, or how any of that's looking. But whatever the case may be, it seems like everyone's happy in this situation. It doesn't seem like the UFC is too upset. Um, Bellator seems as though they're happy to have a, a former top five UFC light heavyweight to put in their division. And for Corey Anderson, it's sort of like a new beginning for him, so he gets to, to go somewhere else. It seems like he wasn't happy in the UFC, so we'll see if he's happy in Bellator. But you, you kind of do wonder what Bellator is willing to pay for him because it's not as though this is going to be a guy who's going to draw a ton of eyes to Bellator and then a ton of people are going to go out of their way to watch. Uh, so we'll see what they do about that. Next topic is Yair Rodriguez versus Abit Magomed Sharipov. This fight was likely going to be a number one contender's fight. Um, but Yair, um, a little over three weeks out, um, injured his ankle and had to pull out. And for him, was, I, I don't know what specific ankle injury he had. Uh, if he did freshly injure his ankle um, three or four weeks out of the fight, it's it, it's very unlikely that it would be back to 100% by the time of the fight. Now, with that being said, most fighters fight with while they're not 100%. If you're Yair and you're, you're having to fight with an injured ankle against a beat, this definitely going to make things a lot more difficult for you. Uh, you'd be worried about getting into a lot of different wrestling exchanges um, where you're trying to base out on a foot. Uh, so maybe for him, he just felt like that ankle injury, even if he gave it time to heal, just would not be in a position where... It would put him in a position where he's just too far behind the eight ball um, from the start of the fight. And if, if he takes any damage in the fight, like checking a light kick or anything else or throwing a kick, um, that it, it just wouldn't make it for a fair fight. So whatever the case may be, he's out of that fight. Uh, right after Zabit was trying to call out other people to, to take that spot, um, one of them was Ox Volkanovsky. Now Volkanovsky had a fair response. He's like, dude, I'm the champion. Like, I'm not the replacement fighter. Um, earn, earn your way to a title fight, and and then I'll, I'll be willing to fight you, but I'm not going to fight you as a replacement on three weeks' notice, which is fair. Uh, Calvin Cater's trying to call for that fight, but right now it looks like Sabit's just going to be taken off of that card in general. Now, as far as what that means, I'm not entirely sure. I know that you have Brian Ortega and the Korean Zombie who are supposed to fight later in the year. So maybe it would make sense right now to just say, okay, well, by default, Zabit's just going to get the win over Yair Rodriguez. Yair has pulled out of this fight like four different times. Uh, so we'll give Zabit the title fight. Um, you could try to book Max Holly versus Yair Rodriguez, although that would kind of suck if Yair has to pull out of that one as well. Um, but you could try to book that fight. Uh, you've already got the other fight with Ortega and Korean Zombie. Uh, so then everyone, everyone's got a dance partner at that point, except for, I guess, Calvin Cater. Uh, so that'd be one option. Um, but you would hope, because it feels like it's been forever since the beats fought. I think Calvin Cater might have been the last guy he did fight, and that was, uh, I think, back in November. So if this is what it takes, where if the UFC just be like, okay, fine, we're going to give Zabit the title fight, uh, I, I wouldn't be too upset about it, but it does kind of suck to lose that fight on uh, what would have been a main event in late August, and it was definitely a fight I was looking forward to. Uh, for your the, the ankle injury will probably put him out for a couple months. I'm not sure uh, when he's looking to get back in there, but again, it, it seems like putting him against Max Holloway later on in the year seems like something that you could potentially do, um, and then still giving Zabit the title fight and then letting Brian Ortega and Korean Zombie fight each other as well. Last thing to talk about is going to be a handful of fights that were announced. Uh, so I'll announce the smaller fights first and then the, um, the big ones last. Uh, so the smaller ones would include uh, Jeff Neal and Neil Magny. Uh, so a battle between ranked welterweights. Um, that one just got booked. Uh, we also have uh, a battle between ranked middleweights and Uriah Hall and Yoel Romero. This is a fight that's been talked about for a while, but now it's finally official. As for the big fights, we have a couple of title fights that are announced. Uh, one of them we kind of knew was coming, but now it's official. 
that was Jennifer Maya versus Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, so I talked about that one on last week's podcast, but again, I don't really see Maya giving Shevchenko too much trouble here in this fight at all. And then the other one that's going to be pretty interesting is at flyweight. I'm trying to remember what the timing was. I think it's I think the same thing happened here um, with Henry Cejudo too, where once Cejudo beat Demetrius Johnson, his first title fight was against a former bantamweight champion. Uh, in that case, it was actually the active champion with T.J. Dillashaw coming down in weight. Uh, same type of thing is going to happen here at Figueredo. Uh, his first defense is going to be against a former bantamweight champion. This one won't be an active champion. Um, but it will be Cody Garbrandt. Uh, he'll be coming down in weight. As far as how to expect this fight to go, this is a really tough one to judge. Um, I, I think in general with Cody Garbrandt, it's, it's kind of tough to tell because from a technical standpoint, he's an excellent boxer, and if he wants to just play like a technical game, he's going to be difficult for most guys to deal with. Uh, all of the trouble that TJ Dillashaw was giving him was from throwing kicks from the outside. It's not as though Figueredo doesn't have kicks, but it's not as though he's going to... It would be different for him to throw the types of kicks that we were seeing T.J. Dillashaw throw uh, in this fight. Not that he can't make that adjustment, but it's not something that we've seen before in the past, uh, so we don't know that it's going to be coming. And for as long as this fight takes place in boxing range, it's not as though Figueredo always like keeps a high, high and tight guard. Like He does leave openings for himself to get clipped, and Garbrandt's got a ton of power, and he's got very fast hands. Um, obviously, Figueredo has a lot of power himself. Um, sometimes he likes to just sort of like pick a... He likes to set up a single powerful shot. Sometimes he likes to throw a couple shots to set up a bigger shot. Uh, if he's headhunting and looking for a single shot, that can be difficult for him because uh, Garbrandt's got decent head movement. He can get out of the way and land his own counters. Uh, so really, it will really be interesting to see how Figueroa approaches this fight, but it's definitely a fight that Garbrandt's got a legitimate shot of winning. Um, if, if he does win, I don't know how he's going to feel about cutting weight in the first place with this one fight and how long he's going to want to stay at flyweight, but it is going to be a really good, um, a really good opportunity for him. Uh, so that covers it for this week. Um, obviously, next week I'll be recapping the UFC 215 card or 252 card. Um, I'm not 100% sure on whether I'm going to do this or not, um, but I had been given a suggestion in the past to do a post-fight thing right away, um, just do a live stream. I'll, I'll see where I'm at uh, when I watch this video, if I'm at home, um, if I've got everything set up. There, there's a chance I might do a live stream. Um, so if you have no notifications for this channel, then you'll, you'll get a notification if I come up. Uh, if, you don't have if you don't have notifications, then now would be a good time to do that. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you, um, you also have the notification bell clicked as well. Uh, so if I do a live post-fight thing, uh, that'll be there. If you don't catch it live, I'm sure there'll be a replay too that you can watch later on. Uh, I, I think the plan with that is if I do um, end up doing a live thing, that that's just going to be UFC 252. Uh, and I'll still have a podcast regardless or still have a standalone podcast. And that podcast will talk about fights coming up the week after and anything else that's coming up but i think if i do something for ufc 252 it's just going to be for 252 it's not gonna be like a full podcast like this where i'm talking about bellator where i'm talking about fights that were announced over the course of the week um or other news stories that came up it would just be a post-fight recap so keep your eyes open for that and uh keep your eyes open for the fights coming this this coming week